1: C-13 Originals.
2: Hey, man, I'm going to take a... You guys can keep playing. I just want to say something real quick here. I just bring it way down here? I've got... I wasn't planning on saying this, but I will say this. I just want to say that... uh, (laughs) um, Like, you know... We've been doing this for so long and, um, you know, this and then Fish and Harvey. It's all like a big gang of friends and we all play together and stuff. And um, there's a lot of people that you guys don't see or know about. Um, getting a little choked up here. Uh, anyway, um, behind the scenes sort of. But they're like as much a part of this huge family as 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 you guys and us. We're all sitting in a room. But uh, so I want to dedicate this song right now to uh, a really important member of our uh, extended family here and uh, his name is Chip Hooper Um, Chip uh, is the guy who has booked he's our booking agent, he's booked every single tab show and every single fish show that any of you have ever been to (laughs) basically every single one so he's been our dear friend for many, many years. And the reason I want to dedicate this song to is because he right now is going through a tough time. He's uh, in a very, um, uh, you know, the battle of his life. He's got uh, cancer and he's right in the hospital down the road. So, like I said, he's it's a tough situation he's in right now. He's really in a heavy struggle. But he's chipper, he's uh, got his spirits are up. And uh, if you guys could, uh, if I could, like, Send him a tape of you guys screaming a thank you for all the good times. It would I can't even begin to tell you how much it would mean to him and mean to me. So I'll just say, uh, Chip, if you hear this tape, we all love you and we thank you for all the good times. And this is for you.
3: That was Fish's Trey Anastasio, performing with the Trey Anastasio Band at the Fox Theater in Oakland on November 6th, 2015. Sending out positive vibes to the band's ailing longtime booking agent, Chip Hooper.
2: Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Chip. Anyway.
3: One thing I've heard time and time again when interviewing the members of the Fish Organization, past and present for this podcast, is that Fish is four people Troy Anastasio, John Fishman, Mike Gordon, and Paige McConnell. Everything follows from the musicians who lead by example and also take an active role in the decision making. Having said that, over the past 35 years, the band has been assisted by a cadre of true believers who have been inspired to push the bounds of their own imagination in order to advance Fish's creative vision. On this episode of Long May They Run, we're going to meet some of these individuals and examine their impact on the Fish touring phenomenon. I'm Dean Budnick, and this is Long May They Run. John Peluska was a junior at Amherst College in the spring of 1988 when he traveled up to Burlington one weekend to visit Mike Billington, a friend from back home in Maine who, along with some other pals, had formed a band called Ninja Custodian. On the night of March 12, 1988, they invited him to stop by Nectar's, a Main Street restaurant and bar, to check out a local group called Fish. Nectars presented live music each night without a cover charge in a room that held 150
4: people, perhaps 200 tops. They were very close friends with the fish guys. They were on the Nectars circuit with them. They often came out and watched each other play or they would jam at each other's houses. And I used to go up there a lot to ski and stay with my friends in Ninja Custodian at their house. They had a kind of a house where they all lived and they were the ones who suggested we go out and see Fish one night, and it was funny, they brought up Frank Zappa, they said, they're a lot like Frank Zappa.
3: Fish performed regularly at the venue, which was located about 600 yards from the band's house. Nectars had a significant long-term impact on the group in many ways. Perhaps most notably, due to the configuration of the stage, which was long and thin, the band members were required to arrange themselves horizontally, rather than having drummer John Fishman set up behind the group an alignment that continues to this day. That March 12th show is significant as it is the first known complete performance of the band's Gamehenge saga, a thematically linked collection of songs which on rare occasion, such as 31288, is punctuated by Trey's
4: spoken word narration. I had a very auspicious first show. It was at Nectar's in the middle set of three sets. They performed Gamehenge in its entirety. And so I'd never seen them, never heard them. And walking into a nightclub with no cover and seeing a band play three sets of incredible music with that as the middle set, that left me reeling. In a story that parallels that of many others who would go on to work with the band
3: over the years, John soon fostered a connection with Fish in an attempt to bring the band to him.
4: We went to that show and then right on the spot, I introduced myself to Mike. Who was essentially managing them at the time, or sort of acting as the person most actively kind of developing their promo kit and all that business and reaching out for gigs? And I told him that the co-op that I lived at, at Amherst College, which is called the Zoo, had this tradition of doing full moon parties, going way back to the '60s, usually with a lot of hallucinogens involved, and. We had a full moon coming up, and I had figured out how to tap into funds from the college to get bands to come play at these full moon parties. So I said, we've got money and a cool spot for you guys to come play if you're available. And they were available, so they came down and they played a full moon party. And that was just an incredible night, basically playing in a large living room in our what was an old frat house that had been converted into a co-op. And then that just sort of spilled into lots of trips to Vermont to go see them and more gigs in Amherst. I got them back in the fall again for another gig there. And then from there, it was getting a few copies of their promo kit and just cruising around the local colleges. There's was a few colleges near Amherst, you know, Hampshire College. We got them a great gig there at this place, the Red Barn, and trying to get them gigs in Northampton or at the University of Massachusetts. I had no designs on managing them or anything. I just didn't want to drive 200 miles to Vermont to go see <laughs> see them or however far it was up there. And I was just excited. I was just really inspired by what they were doing and excited to help them get the word out. I'm not sure I'd call it naive, but I had no designs on any big picture thing. And then some point in the fall, Paige called me and asked if I wanted to manage them. And of course, I had no idea even what that really entailed. But I said, Sure. And at the time, it really felt to me like that just meant getting gigs for them because that's really about all that there was to do. They spent all the money they had saved up to record a few songs. That original demo tape had Golgi Apparatus, Fee, David Bowie, and Fluffhead on it. Those are the four songs they recorded. And that was what I had to present to clubs, (laughs) which was (laughs) pretty interesting because a lot of them couldn't make any sense of it and just thought it was very weird. Meanwhile, Ben Hunter, a Boston University student, who had grown up across the street
3: from Paluska, also traveled to Burlington at the behest of Mike Billington.
5: So one weekend I went up skiing and I saw them at Nectar's. And the memorable aspects of that gig were they played Fire by Jimi Hendrix, of course, at breakneck pace, which I couldn't believe how good that was. And they played the Lizards. And... The instrumental outro of the Lizards is that kind of anthemic da-da-da-da-da-da, da da And it sounded so good and so familiar to me. I just couldn't believe that I was hearing it, but I couldn't place what the song was. I, I swore I knew it. And, of course, this was a tiny club, so I, after they finished, I raced up to the bandstand and I said to Fishman, who was just kind of sitting there, I said, oh my god, that song, it's incredible, whose song is that? (laughs) And he kind of looked at me with that smile and said, oh, it's ours, man, you know. I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And from that moment, I sort of fell in love with the band. And at some point I said, hey, listen, I'm in college in Boston, and would you guys like to play Boston? I think, you know, maybe I can help you guys out with a gig. I'm sort of known as the music guy at school, and, you know, maybe we could book something and get a few people in there.
3: In November of 1988, Hunter rented out a small Boston area club called Molly's. A few hundred people showed up, and he repeated this the following month. Then, after that second successful Molly's show, he decided to land a traditional gig, where the band wouldn't need to lease the venue.
5: We went to the Paradise, which was the premier rock club in Boston at the time. still exists. It's 650 capacity and Tons of great bands have played there over the years, and I went into the guy who was the talent buyer, the booking agent for the club, and said, hey, you know, here's a demo, you know, I had a whole packet, here's the tape, here's the photo of the band, and, you know, they looked like total (laughs) freaks. If you look at some of those early promo photos, they're really funny, and he was basically like... Who the fuck are you? You know, you're, you're a pimply-faced 19-year-old kid. You know, get the hell out of here. And I was like, but, you know, we just played two great shows at Molly's and hundreds of people came and, you know, you wouldn't believe it. He said, basically, what's Molly's? <laughs> and I said, well, it's this club up on Com Ave. You know, it's just in student slums. And he said, you know, I don't think so. And so I was basically walking out of his office with my tail between my legs and feeling like a fool, and I said to myself, well, you know, I might as well try to give it a last-ditch effort. So I said, what would it cost to rent the club and have a gig? And he looked at me, kind of looked at me up and down. He's like, $1,500 on a Sunday night. And I said, whoa, you know, that's a lot of money. Uh, I'll get back to you, never really thinking that I was – probably going to go through with it. But uh, nonetheless, I brought the notion to the band and I said, what do you think guys, do you think we can 650 capacity if it's 1500 to rent the place, you know, maybe we can charge five bucks a ticket and you know, maybe we can break even Uh, maybe we can make a little bit of money. What do you think? And they thought about it and they said, well, you know, let's do it. We'll put up the money. So we decided to rent the place. And there were several buses that came down from Vermont with their fans. And lo and behold, we sold the place
3: out. Tom Baggett, the UVM student responsible for the transportation of fans from Burlington to Boston, recalls. This was a big show. And Burlington needed to represent
6: and support their hometown heroes. And it wasn't very hard for me to figure out how to pick up the phone and reserve a bus we had to pay for it i had a bunch of tickets that i could sell and i sold those tickets and i managed to get enough sold quickly to put the deposit down on the bus we sold about 250 tickets and the bus seated 47. the rest of those tickets went to people who were carpooling and there was a very informal but really excited network of people who were like i've got room in my car boy that was fun i remember standing at the bar at the paradise and there was a guy standing next to me talking to another guy both older gentlemen and one said what the hell's going on here these guys sold out my club and we wouldn't book them and the other guy's like i have no idea man they brought a bus and they brought all their fans from burlington this is crazy In hindsight, that was someone probably at Don Law Productions or something like that. But, man, what a trip. And that was like, I think the overwhelming sense amongst the people from Burlington when we got there and saw the room was selling out or sold out was that we had won. (laughs) We had done something special
4: for our boys, and we had won. It was quite something. We sold it out, and after that one, we did start doing the gigs at the somerville theater which were really special those we rented the theater directly and promoted them ourselves the colonial theater in keene new hampshire that was another place the portsmouth music hall we did one there we basically sought out a lot of these kind of under a thousand seat really nice little theaters around new england and just started renting them out ourselves because we realized it could be more profitable and we didn't need a promoter to to do the show John Peluska graduated
3: in the spring of 1989. He then moved to the Boston area, where Ben Hunter was still in school. The pair shared an apartment and managerial duties.
5: Well, it was basically just an extra room. That's what it was. It wasn't a bedroom, and it wasn't a living room. It was an extra room, and there was a filing cabinet in it and a desk and, you know, a telephone and a desk lamp and a bunch of promo packets for fish. and. We got Polestar, the industry publication that told us who all the talent buyers were. And we basically just looked at a map and said, where's Ithaca? Where's Skidmore? Where, <laughs> where's Dartmouth? And not only did we try to do college gigs, because you know almost every college has a budget for throwing parties or whatever, we tried to do that. But then we also tried to do clubs in the surrounding areas as well there was Burlington and there was Boston and there was Western mass. And that was kind of a three pronged axis of popularity, but off axis, there was not that same kind of fervor for the band at that point. But the approach was to just build slowly through word of mouth, through great live performances and through recidivism, basically just play a venue and then play it again a couple months later. And, Don't play it too regularly, but play it enough so that people remember the last gig.
7: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash recommend today.
7: Hi, this is Amy Fuller here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking. About murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: In an effort to build grassroots support for the band, the Fish newsletter debuted in early 1989. It was available at the group's shows and also sent to anyone who signed on to the mailing list. The March newsletter contained this note Wanted, creative light person to run new light show for Fish on a salaried permanent basis. This very valuable partner will travel with the band as a fifth member. We are looking for someone from the New England area, no need to live in Burlington. As it turned out, Fish soon found their creative light person, but not quite via the newsletter. Chris Corotta was a UVM computer science major.
8: They were sort of the local college band playing in Nectars and the bars around town. And I was just, you know, a kid who was uh, going to school there and was a fan of the band and would spend a lot of my time going to see them in the little bars. And I was taking guitar lessons from Trey Anastasio on the side because I wanted to learn how to play guitar and I decided to ask the best guitar player in town, which was him. And uh, one day during a guitar lesson, he asked me if I knew anybody who wanted to make 20 bucks at the end of the show, helping carry the gear from the stage to the van. They had this red, like Econoline van. And I said, I would do it. And I did that for about two weeks. And then they sort of bought a couple of lights and a little light board that was the size of a hardcover book. And for lack of anybody else available to run it, I just kind of got thrust into the role. And I remember telling him, I don't know how to do this. I don't even know how to set it up. And he went, well, we'll figure it out together.
3: And so they did, with Corotta drawing on his instincts based on his years as a lifelong music enthusiast in general, and a fish fan in particular.
8: It's understanding the band, understanding how the music works, understanding how the jams work, and then... It's kind of making a lot of educated guesses as you roll through the night. You know, when it comes to lighting, even today, in order for the lighting cue to be spot on with audio and what's happening in the music at any given moment, you have to push the button before the note happens and just hope that you're right. (laughs) So there was a lot of that going on, you know, and I was right most of the time. So, <laughs> and when those big sort of tension and release moments come, and the tension comes, it's you just need to know when the release is. And it's interesting with fish because there are many times when you think it's time for the release, but it's not. You got to stay in the tension. <laughs> so, it's not just as simple as EDM, which is build 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 boom on one. So you push that button on the same time the note happens, the lighting cue will be late. And that was something, as the perfectionist that I am, that wouldn't fly. It's got to be spot on time. Antelope is a perfect example. Antelope's going crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier, and then on the right downbeat, it goes boom, and it's done. Well, you've got to go from your crazy white strobing insanity to a blue stage and you've got to push the button early and hope that that's the right place, because if they keep going, that's going to look really silly.
3: On occasion, and in a playful manner, the band did make him look really silly.
8: As a joke, Trey, he's done this to me like five different times over the course of the 30 years that I've been doing this. But he'll put his finger in the air and do the one, two. One, two, three, and I'll slam the lights on on four, but no sound will come off the stage. And all four band members will point at me and laugh and go, we got you.
3: (laughs) He clearly appreciates the spirit in which this was intended. And on more than one occasion, he has helped them out of a jam, so to speak.
8: Sometimes I'm just flowing and following and just trying to, to keep one in the right place. Musical one. And then sometimes I can tell that they've just gotten so far off, it doesn't happen very often, but that I'll really accent one to help them find one again. We actually used to refer to it as help me find one. (laughs) So, and I've been told by those guys on occasion, like, yeah, you know, that I didn't know where I was, so I followed you and then found my way back.
3: If there's one unheralded aspect of Chris Kuroda's artistic essence, it's probably his harmonica skills. Listen to him on stage with the band in December of
8: 1989.
3: Frankly, given these gifts, one wonders why Chris didn't pursue his avocation over the years. Except, as I imagine, many of you were able to discern that wasn't actually Chris Carota on stage at the Ukrainian National Home on twelve fifteen eighty nine. It was John Popper. Here's what Trey said prior to the song.
2: Well, he gets this microphone cord ready. I just want you guys to uh, help us out here with this little gag we want to play, if you will. Okay, we have to hang on. Let me explain this to you. We used to have this light. His name was Tim, and he uh, played harp. And he used to get up and play harp with us and jam with us. And he wasn't that good, but he had a lot of fun. So, so anyway, he, he left us. We have a new light person. Chris is running lights back there. Okay, and this is what we want to do. Paul, our sound man, is taping this whole thing. So what he's doing now is turn off the tape while I explain all this to you. And when, when John starts playing, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce him as Chris so that we can give Tim, our old light person, this tape and say, you know, Tim, Chris has been picking up the harmonica. He's getting pretty good, man. Here's like a tape of him playing. So when you guys yell, you got to go, all right, Chris.
3: (laughs) This was John Popper's first time meeting the band, let alone performing with them. But he sells it at the end. I better get back to those lights. The nature of that joke suggests a collegiality and connection with crew members past and present. In that spirit, I'd like to revisit a story that I left hanging in episode two. After the Curveball Festival was canceled, the band was disappointed not only for their own sake and that of their fans, but also on behalf of their entire team, who had worked so hard to create a special secret midnight set that didn't come to pass. However, the next morning, they rebounded. We had this midnight thing planned with this giant sphere and
2: all these extraneous spheres. And we had done this whole thing with tunnels and filming, and we were going to be in the, it was going to be unbelievable. And it was all just garbage within one minute. And the next morning I woke up and it was really sad and everybody was kind of worried about the people and how, oh my God, it was just sucked. But then I thought, well, there's two ways to go here. Either like cry in your milk or do something even cooler. And I remember getting on the phone with my day-to-day manager, Patrick Jordan. I said, we got to do something with it. It's just too cool. And immediately he was kind of like, this is tricky. I don't know how it's going to go inside. It's giant. It's 40 feet high. It's an arena. And I was like, well, we're doing it. And I said, um, I want to do a fake band called The Sphere that's from Swingin' London. You know what I mean? Like... Weep, wee, boop. Like, you know, like whatever that fucking thing was, and it's the sphere and it's, and, and I started mocking up covers on my phone and we're going to get it in there. We're going to write music and off it went. And then there was partners we were working with trying to get this production thing to go in and everybody just kept calling and saying, you can't get the sphere in the arena. Forget it. I'm like, there's got to be a way hang it in the middle. There's got to be a way. We spent so much time and money on that thing. It was going to be so cool. And it was just sad that people weren't going to see it. It was really cool. And finally, I got on the phone with the guy who was going to do the production. And it was like, he said, you know, I can't do this. And I was like, well, what can you do? (laughs) Like, just tell me something you can do and we'll take it from there. (laughs) He's like, I can make the stage white. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you can walk off for a set break and everything will be black. And 15 minutes later, walk back on and the whole stage will be white. And I'm like, how are you gonna do this? He's like, that's what I can do. There'll be a kabuki. I'm like, what the hell's a kabuki? He's like, the stage will be white. And I was like, okay. It's no longer Swinging London. It's now Finland, (laughs) and it's the 80s, because the 80s is white. In one minute, it was like, okay, it's Finland, it's the 80s, it's white. And then I had some grooves, and then up to the barn with the band, introduced this idea to the band, and then we start writing the music. You know what I mean? Like, put the grooves, blah, 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 everybody's writing lyrics, you know, on pads. That's how the idea came up. But it all started with Curveball getting canceled. No Curveball canceled, no Cosvat Voxed.
3: And that's the story of how Fish came to perform their second set of Halloween 2018 covering a fictitious prog rock band called Cosvat Vox. There are some other aspects of those events we'll explore next time. But let's jump back to 1989, when Armand Sandlier, a Maryland-based booking agent, discovered Fish for himself. Sandlier had started his career at age 23 in his hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania, helping his sister find gigs for her band. This led to an invitation to join an agency in Manhattan. However, after two years, he realized he wasn't happy in this work environment, so he re-established himself as an independent agent and soon connected with artists in the nascent improvisational rock scene.
9: In the late 80s, there was a band here in the D.C. area called New Potato Caboose. They got pegged as a dead band at the beginning, but they had original songs, and they got a record deal with, I think, Ryko Disc back when nobody had a record deal with Ryko Disc. And so I became their agent because they were from here. And then they went to Atlanta, and they opened for Widespread. And then Widespread talked to me, and they wanted me to be their agent, so then I went on to be Widespread's agent. And then they introduced me to Colonel Bruce Hampton, and Bruce and I became friends for the rest of his life. And then Bruce told me, you need to go see these fish guys. And uh, then I checked out that they were playing at the Roxy here in D.C., a little club I'd never been to. It was an upstairs club that held about 200 people. It was a Wednesday night. They'd never played in D.C., and there was 200 people in this little upstairs club. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> that just tells you immediately what's going on. So, uh, you know, I started talking to Paluska, and uh, he let me book all the tours down here and through the south. He kept the west coast and the northeast. So it was he and I. I booked about half the dates, and he booked about half the dates for, I guess, for two years that went on.
3: Armin Credits Fish for being prescient with their touring strategy. They changed my perspective to the business.
9: It's like they had their mailing list, the fish update, and it was incredible. So it's like there's ways to sell tickets without getting a record deal. They were the first band that opened my eyes to the fact that you could draw a crowd without having a record deal or being on the radio. And you know, then once the internet hit, everything changed, but that was that wasn't for another like twelve years.
3: Of course, the band did eventually land a record deal. First with the indie label AbsolutaGogo, whose parent company went bankrupt shortly after the release of Lawn Boy. Then Fish signed with the major label Electra, and in the process, contrary to standard practice and conventional wisdom, demanded that its fans could continue taping and trading live performances. The group was also thinking of its fans when John decided to enlist a full-time national booking agent to apply a bit more knowledge and leverage to that process. So he approached Monterey Peninsula Artists, a small but respected firm in Carmel, California, where Chip Hooper, a junior agent, was assigned to the band. Armand understood this decision, and notes that Fish offered to take care of him.
9: They said to Monterey, well, we're open to coming there, but we want you to hire Armand. So that's the kind of guys they are. And although I appreciated it, I had already been here so many years, and I had friends, and, and I became very good friends with Chip Hooper, wonderful guy. But I remember him telling me, oh, yeah, well, I've been on the road for, you know, seven of the last eight weekends because you've got to go see the bands, and when you're in Carmel, they're not anywhere close to there. So, you know, you've got to get on a plane every weekend, and I just didn't see my life like
7: that.
10: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC.
3: Chip Hooper's first order of business was to further establish Fish as a national touring act, moving from clubs to theaters to arenas and amphitheaters from 1992 to 1995. Then, he began working towards a goal that no other band, at a comparable stage in their development, had yet attempted. Fish wanted to sell 50% of the tickets to any of their shows, and also limit service fees on all of their tickets, in an attempt to make things easier and more cost-effective for fans who wish to follow the band on tour. Let's pause here. If you're a live music fan, then this is something that's really important to understand. While it might sound simple for a band to demand the right to sell half of the tickets to its shows, this actually violated existing contracts. Here's why. Going back to the late 1960s, computerized ticketing companies, first Ticketron and then Ticketmaster, maintained low service fees and typically charged the venues for the right to use their services. This all changed in 1982, when Fred Rosen became the CEO of Ticketmaster he altered the company's business model by convincing his venue clients to allow him to raise service fees. And these proceeds then became a profit center that was shared by Ticketmaster, the venue, and often the promoter as well. Ticketmaster often paid out signing bonuses, sometimes in the millions of dollars, and also advanced money against future earnings. However, in exchange for all of this, Ticketmaster demanded the right to sell 100% of the tickets. But Fish wanted half of the seats and wanted to lower the fees, neither of which was acceptable to Ticketmaster. The Grateful Dead were the only other band to make such a demand and succeed. However, unlike Fish, the Dead were then filling multiple night runs at arenas and also playing stadiums, so the venues were willing to give in and push back against Ticketmaster in violation of the contracts they had signed. When Fish began working toward the launch of their own mail-order ticketing service in the fall of 1995, they weren't operating on the same scale as The Dead. However, Chip Hooper, with the full support of John Paluska and the band, was able to secure 50% of the ticket inventory and also cap service fees through sheer force of will. This was extraordinary.
4: Yeah, so obviously The Grateful Dead was our model for that. We had seen what they had done, we had seen the way that selling a portion of the tickets directly to fans was both a huge convenience and also an opportunity to forge a deeper relationship with them. And we knew our fans would be interested. One of the big motivations, of course, is that they were going to multiple shows in multiple cities, and back in those days, you couldn't even buy tickets online. (laughs) So to get tickets for shows in a bunch of different cities was not easy. So one of our rationales was, yeah, we really wanna make it possible if somebody lives in Boston and they wanna go you know, up and down the East Coast for a week with us, we wanna make it possible for them to do that and one-stop shopping if at all possible. So that was a big motivation and realization that this really made sense with our fan base. You know, I remember over the years, a lot of bands would come to us and like, how do you do this? We wanna to try to do this. And what they didn't understand was for the most part, it starts with a, a fan base that really is tailor-made for what you're offering. And most artists didn't have that. But Fish did and does. So in terms of how we pulled it off, you know, it's funny. We just basically sent them a deal memo and said, this is the deal we're willing to make with you and service charges are a big deal to us. So they have to be capped at these numbers. And you have to agree to this if we're going to play... Here's what Chip told me a few years ago, while I was working on the book Ticketmasters,
3: about how he achieved the goal.
1: It was pretty dirty sometimes. I mean, it was like, do this or else, because it was really important to fish, and fish was, you know, my thing. I tell a building, do it, or I'm not going to sell you the band. And not only will I not sell you the band, I'll sell it to your competitor. And so, for a couple of tours, you know, we may have to play a couple of buildings we don't want to play to make sure we can set this precedent. There was a situation in a big city, big big city with a few arenas. One building told me they would do it. I went to confirm the show, and I was reconfirming the terms. I said, you know, and we have 50% of the tickets. And they said, well, I don't know if I can do that. I said, well, what do you mean you can't do that? I have a fax from you saying that you would do that as part of your offer to me. And they said, well, I don't know if I can do it now. And the guy was trying to play Russian roulette with me. I said, don't say this because they said, you know, we might not play your building if you do it. He said, no, I'm telling you, you know, I just can't do it. Ticketmaster won't let me. And by the way they're not going to let you do it in Building B either. And I called Building B, and he had like a dog show or something in there. And I said, hey, Building B, I want to know if you'll lose your dog show, and I'll give you two days of fish, if you'll give me half the tickets. And he said, done. And so then, you know, literally a week later, we went on sale, and I pretended to not know what was going on. When the other building kept calling. I said, well, I'm still working out. I'm still working out. And the next day, they read about a the full-page newspaper ad. Couple of people who lost their jobs over it, where they were playing cat and mouse with me, and I said, "Don't mess with me, because I'm serious. You really won't get the band if you don't do this."
3: On behalf of Fish, Chip Hooper established a precedent that endures to the present day—a policy that Fish pursued on behalf of its fans. His client list also included Dave Matthews Band, Brandy Carlisle, and Ray LaMontagne. Chip won the Polestar Magazine Agent of the Year award eight times, more than any of his peers. After his firm, Monterey Peninsula, was acquired by Paradigm Talent Agency, he became head of music, overseeing four offices and over 2,000 clients. Through it all, Chip carried himself in a manner unlike most any other agent. Chuck Morris, the longtime concert promoter and current CEO of AEG Presents Rocky Mountains and Pacific Northwest, whose career extends nearly 50 years, explains, He was just not only brilliant, not only a great
11: agent, but a wonderful person. Sort of the antithesis of a lot of agents that are sort of famous for being tough and mean and nasty. Chip was a sweetheart, but was a great agent. Just had a style that was unusual, which was just
3: a sweet guy. Unfortunately, in 2012, at age 50, Chip discovered he had cancer. He held it in abeyance for as long as he could, but despite a variety of treatments, the disease took its toll. One of my favorite Chip stories, and there are so many Chip stories, involves a party thrown in his honor by Ron Delsner, the legendary New York City promoter at his house in the Hamptons. Chip wasn't aware of the guest list beyond attorney Elliot Groffman, who accompanied him. Elliot recalls that Chip wasn't comfortable arriving empty-handed, so they showed up early with champagne in tow.
11: We had no idea who was going to be there. We go over a little on the early side because you know, Chip wanted to make sure the champagne was chilled properly. So we knock and nobody answers and so we kind of open the door, we kind of walk in and Ron's coming around the corner with two guys saying, yeah, come on, I'll show you the wine cellar. And we look in and one of them is Steve Croft from 60 Minutes. And the other is Stephen Cohen, the financier. And so then we're kind of standing there, you know, recovering from that. And all of a sudden we hear, hi, I'm your host for tonight. May I take your coats? And we turn around, and it's Paul McCartney with a hoodie on, <laughs> you know. He says, oh, come on in, guys. And then, of course, in comes Roger Waters. And then John Bon Jovi comes in, <laughs> you know, I'm in town, it's like, okay, and we wander into the living room, and Delsner is one of the great, you know, art collectors. I mean, he has Diebenkorns, and Basquiat's and Warhols, and Frankenthalers, and Pollocks, I mean, you know, an amazing collection, and of course, this big Willem de Kooning picture, which he has in his living room. And we come around the corner and there's Paul <laughs> standing in front of the picture. So We, of course, go wandering up. And uh, he goes, you know, I knew de Kooning. And he goes, yeah, so in fact, I think we went to visit Willem's house when he was working on this series. And and Chip goes, well, did you talk to him about this painting? Like, what did he say? He goes, yeah, well, I asked him what it reminded him of, you know? And he, he says, de Kooning crossed his arms and looked serious and looked at the painting and said, it reminds me of my couch. <laughs> and uh, he kind of pauses and we're looking at the picture, and, and he has a joint in his hand. He takes a hit off the joint, and then he passes it to Chip, and Chip goes, oh, no, I can't. You know, it's been a long night. And Paul looks at him with a smile on his face and goes, Take the joint, I'm a beetle.
3: (laughs) Chip was an accomplished landscape photographer whose work hangs in galleries across the globe. He had an artist's eye. Promoter Don Strasberg, co-president of AEG Rocky Mountains and Pacific Northwest, is a longtime Fish fan who also rode a bus, back in 1989, from Burlington to the Paradise to catch a show. He first heard the story of Ron Delsner's dinner from Chip himself, during one of Fish's performances at Dick's Sporting Good Park in Colorado.
6: My favorite part of the story, though, because Chip was a photographer and he understood composition. And in a weird way, these great artists all, not in a weird way, in the exact same way, artists understand composition. And Ron's a very big art collector as well. And as they were walking out, there's some beautiful picture by some very famous person on the wall. This is just Chip telling the story. And... He looks at the picture of McCartney, and McCartney points to the picture and says, what do you think the best part about this picture? And Chip looks at it and says, where there isn't paint. And McCartney says, exactly. And um, Chip got it. He understood that the dark spaces make the light that much better, too. And that was Chip Hooper.
11: It's like you define what's important to you. You define your passions. You create connections with people that are just so real and so true and so deep, and then you just go all the way.
3: On March fifth, two 2016, Chip Hooper passed away from cancer. Patrick Jordan, who, as Trey mentioned earlier, is part of the current fish management team, maintained a close relationship with Chip. He put people first, and he put life first, and and that enabled him to be you know the best at at being who he is. Because you know when it, when he when it came time to drill down on a deal or, or something, you know every first of all everybody loved him, so he he'd always get his way. He taught me so much and influenced everything I've become as a manager and as a human being and dad and all these things. It's not uncommon for me to sit back and go, well, what would Chip think about this? Yeah, he's just one of the most important people I've ever met. I just, I miss him so much because I have so much to tell him. Here's Paige McConnell. I have so
0: many memories of Chip Hooper, and if you knew Chip, you knew that he was a incredibly passionate about music and about booking and about fish he loved fish and he became close with us in a way that probably a lot of booking agents don't become close with the artists and he was very good at his job and incredibly diligent and persistent and just always had our back and was always working so hard for us I know plenty of folks in our organization and people that I've met around that have shared stories with me about how much CHIP has meant to them and and how much CHIP helped them grow in the industry and what a great presence and positive person he was and, and he always was and I miss him and we owe him a lot. He was just a great person for us to work with for so,
3: so many years. Fish is for people, except Fish has always been so much more.
2: So I'll just say, uh, Chip, if you hear this tape, we all love you and we thank you for all the good times. And this is for you.
0: marvelous show.
2: It's a limited time that we exist. We slowly make our way into the mist.
0: My thoughts are racing. I see faces of the friends that I recall. The struggle and strife we find
2: ourselves in the show of life.
3: Join us next time on Long May They Run to learn the profound impact of two simple words. Yes and... I want to thank everyone who shared their memories of Chip with me for this episode, especially Maxim Val. And thank you for your incredible feedback so far. If you love the show, please be sure to rate it and write a quick review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C-13 Originals. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockridge, and me. Season one is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Perry Crowell. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination by Terence Malingone and production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney. Press by Hillary Schuff and marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is right off, written by Miles Davis, and performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers. And mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer, and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season.